Welcome folks, uh, welcome to another video. Again, this is um, regarding reproductive, okay? So there's a series of videos that I'm putting out. Um, again, some of these, it's just uh, for your understanding, um, things that we may not talk about enough in our society. So something that you should be aware of as a, as a clinician, as a practitioner, as a medical health professional. So something to keep in mind, okay? So this video is about pregnancy and babies, uh, where babies actually come from. One of the uh, fun, fun little videos. Uh, to talk about and we don't really think much about it when, when we think about this so where does babies come from okay the story starts here the story actually starts here in the testes uh, you have uh, these right here these cells here uh, that actually make um, babies okay um, so the story starts here this is where babies actually being made uh, most men actually produce sperm in uh, about four to six hours, okay? Produce sperm in four to six hours. We're gonna talk more about that in, in the actual reproductive chapter. So um, so think about that, you know? Um, so men will make sperm every four, four to six hours, and we're continuously doing this until the day we die. So we're just a sperm-making machine uh, until, the way, until the day we die, okay? So when these sperms, once they mate, okay? So let's say if we want to kind of take a journey into the, the world of making babies, okay, to make it easier to understand, so let's kind of scale things up a little bit because when we look at in that small, it's hard for us to actually comprehend actually what have happened in terms of the size of the scale that actually happened. So let's scale the sperm up. If we were to scale the sperm up into a size of human being, the average human being, this is what how things actually look like, how things will look like. Okay, so let's scale it up to the size of a human being. If the sperm is the size of a human being, the testes will be about this big. Uh, this is this is actually a building in London, but it's actually been blown up about three hundred times. Um, your uh, the building would be more than three hundred story tall. Uh, will be a huge building. Uh, none of the building in the world is actually this big at this point. So it'll be a huge building if the sperm is the size of men. And what it's going to look like inside of the uh, inside of testes? It looks like this. You have tons of people actually packing in there, packing in there. Um, the sperm actually lasts about uh, will last in in testes about uh, three to four days to five days, depending. Uh, some sperm might last a little bit longer. Uh, so you could see sperm has different ages. So you could see you know, older sperm and the younger sperm. So because uh, the sperm does you know doesn't last forever, uh, even though the testes outside of your body it's, uh, it's a couple of degrees lower to keep the sperm alive a little bit longer, but still the sperm doesn't last that long. Sperm doesn't last last years and years. Uh, only lasts about about a week or so, or less than a week. Okay, uh, sperm does dictate one thing: whether you actually will have a baby boy or girl. Uh, for women's egg, they only have X chromosome in the egg, so the the chromosome in the in the egg itself, in the uh, the ovulation of the egg of women, only have the X chromosome. The sperm, each sperm, will actually coded with either a Y chromosome or an or X chromosome. If you have an X chromosome, the X will combine with another X with the uh, with the egg that will make you a woman. If you are Y chromosome of Y sperm, then it actually will uh, combine with another X and you will make you a male sperm. So technically speaking, it's the sperm that will dictate whether you will be a boy or a girl, not the egg itself. So whatever you do to the women, some people believe that you need to you know go and do it in a certain position or rub certain the belly certain thing or eat certain thing for women so they could have a baby boy or girls. None of those are, are true. It's actually based on the guy you whichever the sperm actually reach the egg that is the one that will be will make a boy or a girl. Okay, the sperm say lay dormant, lay sleeping inside a place called epididymis inside the testes. They just waiting for that faithful moment uh, for them to go to work, go on that action, and they actually could kind of resting and sleeping there until they actually uh, get moving again. Okay, for the most part, 
ejaculation, this is what happened in ejaculation, the sperm actually being forced out uh, from the testes, uh, being forced out. They're not just, uh, they're not sending an invite and then let them migrate slowly. No, uh, when that, um, when that um, ejaculation happened, it, the sperm actually being squeezed, squeezed out the uh, the nest that they were in, nice and com comfy bed. They were squeezing out from that nice and comfy bed. Uh, just imagine this: uh, you you actually going on a, a slide, uh, like a like a water slide that actually about six miles long, six miles long. Okay, water slide six miles long in a split second. You're actually doing this within one to two seconds. All of this happened. So you're being pushed out. You're being squeezed out. You're being like like this picture is like cannon out, shooting out from that, uh, from that nice warm place into this horrible place. Okay. So the first place that the sperm landed is on the uh, vagina, a vaginal canal, vagina here. I always compare that to like a D-Day. And D-Day, for those of you who are old enough, this is in World War II at the Normandy beach in World War II. Okay. Uh, so sperm, just like soldiers like these, get onto the beach of the D-Day. Uh, you have these uh, Nazi on the other side of, the, of France trying to shoot down, shoot you down uh, because this is invasion. You have an invasion into the vaginal canal. Okay. You have all this kind of like a war scene going on, technically. You have a war scene going on in the vaginal canal, literally. Uh, people are dying, sperm are dying left and right. Casualties are like uh, horrendous. Um, just to put, put things in perspective a little bit, okay? So when every time men ejaculate, you have at least at least 15 to 20 million sperm, 15 to 20 million. This is a healthy, young, healthy men would be 15 to 20 million. And it could that number could go up to 100 million sperm. Okay, so huge amount of soldier, huge, huge amount of sperm, uh, get on this beach, get on this beach. Okay, but unfortunately, a lot of sperm die when they land on that beach. Unfortunately, that's just a fact of the truth that they actually die. Majority of them actually die on the beach. More than ninety percent of them will not make it. More than ninety percent, or even hundred percent of them, do not make it. Okay, at all, they actually will die on that vaginal canal. Just a sad, sad story. Okay, uh, one thing I do want to mention that not all sperm created are equal. Okay, so not all sperm created equal. So meaning that some sperm have a bigger head. You can see some have a smaller head. Some have two heads. Some have two tails. Some are very thin and tiny. Versus the fat boy here. Some has a crooked head. Uh, some has a weird. Uh, tail so and some just circle around some just kind of ram to each other some just ram into the wall so some are not too smart when those are those are the ones that usually don't make it those are the ones that die hopefully less by miracles of those actually get uh, you know get in and uh, um, have a baby somehow you make a baby out of that those one you might end up with like dumb and dumber kind of kind of thing so so hopefully those usually doesn't make it Okay. Usually die in a vaginal canal. So if you were to put in perspective, this is what vaginal canal look like. If you actually ever feel vagina or vag vaginal canal, you will know it has, has a lot of ridges, has a, a up and down, look like curves. So those up and down are like mountains to sperm. Uh, like sperm have to climb up and climb down those mountains. Um, just to, not climbing, but in actuality is swimming. So they're actually swimming up and down those mountains. So really, uh, so those... Uh, these what happen. This is what kind of looks like what it feels like. You have these mountains, really high ridges, like a vaginal canal would have, and valleys like this, and the sperm will actually have to swim through that. Okay, 
A couple of things. The first obstacle is the, the vaginal canal itself. Vaginal canal actually has a pH of 4. pH of 4 is highly acidic. Uh, you could see acidic rain. Okay, it's acidic rain. So soft drink. A lot of some of the soft drinks actually are 4, 4 or 5. Like some of them, like you drink like Coke. Uh, so next time you think you drink Coke, you drink, uh, technically you drink, almost drink vaginal, vaginal canal. So same thing. So you like drinking vaginal canal, drink that Coke. Now you're not going to drink coke ever again when you hear that. So, uh, so vaginal canal is very acidic. So most sperm that you get into it, you're going to die from it right off the bat. You, you're going you're to kill yourself right off the bat. Okay. Second thing that needs to happen, second obstacle, is the cervix has this mucus plug. The cervix has this mucus plug most of the week and most of the month. Okay. Uh, technically, is uh, sperm cannot get through, cannot get even get up there with this mucus plug. Okay, when you have this mucus plug, things are closed for business. Everything is closed. Sperm cannot even get in. If you look at here, this is a huge clip um, for sperm to swim up. Again, sperm is not like human. They cannot just jump. They're not like tadpole. They could just jump onto these. So technically speaking, sperm would have a hard time just getting up into the cervix, even that by itself. Okay, so with this mucus plug, the nucleus, nucleus plug actually will prevent any sperm to get in. Uh, about two or three days out of the month uh, for women, this is when the this mucus plug actually dissolves. That mucus plug will actually dissolve down. Uh, and when it dissolves down, it actually makes a bridge for the sperm to swim up that bridge to go up. So, and the mucus plug has to be kind of like an egg white consistency. It has to be an egg white consistency. Not too thick. If it's too thick, sperm cannot go up. And if too liquidy, sperm cannot go up either. It actually will not create this little bridge for them to swim up okay this one is way too thick this is yellowish color this is something telling me that there's an infection there going on there so uh ooh, smelly kind of thing okay so again um smucus plug is there most of the days uh, most of the month only about two or three days you want it to be kind of egg white consistency like this you don't want it to be too pasty too thick uh, too watery so none of those will actually uh will be uh, fertile so the mucus plug will act like a stair, so like like climbing up this uh, um, um, staircase, going up. It would go up approximately like a thirty-story tall. Okay, so it will be similar to as you climbing up this uh, ladder, thirty thirty-story tall. Okay. So, tell you the truth, once sperm actually get to the cervix, I say if there's this uh, mucus plug actually dissolve down and the sperm get to here. Usually speaking, uh, you have about 10,000 left. 10,000 out of how many? 15 million at least, 15 million sperm at least, or even 100 million. That's the lousy, lousy or odd. That's more than, less than 1% actually get up into the cervix. Less than 1%. You have 15 million sperm, you have less than 1% that have a chance to actually get into the cervix. But the fun doesn't stop there. The cervix itself, is considered to be a channel of death. That's what I call it, channel of death. So sperm has to squeeze through. This is a very tight and tight place. So sperm really have to squeeze through all of this space to get through the cervix. You have tons and tons of sperm trying to get through. So again, this is a channel of death. So uh, sperm has to squeeze themselves through these little channel to get through to the to the uh, to the opening of the uterus, uh, inside the uterus. So they really have to squeeze and jam this themselves getting into that. So again, that's the channel of death for you, okay? Usually about a thousand of them uh, make it through to the inside the uterus. Um, once you pass through the uterus, it's again, it's like a godforsaken land. Uh, it's actually a very desolate kind of land, okay, landscape.
you have this death smell everywhere. Uh, death is around the corner. So once you get through this, you're gonna have this assassin waiting for you. These assassins are female um, immune defense. You want the female white blood cells and all the uh, immune cells that are looking to kill any foreign body, including sperm. Sperm is actually a foreign body. So if you have a thousand left, just getting through that channel of death, um, you will have to face these lovely folks. Uh, it, it's like Friday the 13th. Uh, Jason is coming after you. The Freddy Krueger is coming after you. So you will have to swim for your life. Swim for your life. So you actually will start from here inside the uterus and you have to make all the way through okay all these godforsaken land uh, landscape inside of uterus okay so all these assassins and you have to run uh, as fast as you can otherwise you will be killed and most of these you will be killed um, okay so once you hit the end of the uterus you have to decide which way to turn is it left or right um, because again women actually ovulate one egg per month so and this usually alternate both you know from left to the right side the sperm has to make a choice whether which side to go to if you make the wrong choice you die okay so all all of this is about death and every every, every turn every corner you go through this death waiting for you death waiting for that sperm okay so unfortunately, not unfortunately, fortunately, when, when you ovulate, when women actually ovulate, you send out the hormone, sending a hormone signal. And usually sperm are pretty good picking up those hormone signals. Most of the majority of them know which side to go to because they pick up that hormone signal. Some unlucky one or not so smart one tends to go to the opposite way. Okay, did not pick up that hormone levels. So something to keep in mind. Once you pass uh, into this fallopian tube, okay, Fallopian tube, usually you have about 10 or less left. Remember, we started about 1,000 sperm getting inside the uterus. 1,000 sperm, only 10 of them left uh, right here in the fallopian tube. Fallopian tube is actually a very comfy place. This is the, it has a best pH balance for the sperm, so this is like sperm heaven. After two days, after a two day or three days journey of hell, literally hell, uh, two or three day journeys of hell, uh, now they get to relax in this wonderful heavenly place where there's it's nutrients for the sperm. Uh, it helps sperm to recharge. There's not, uh, there's not assassin waiting to kill them. Uh, there's not someone is, you know, trying to stab them in the back. So they could just sit back, relax a little bit, and relax, and let their mind uh, relax for a few minutes. Okay, last stage, they have to meet the egg. That's the that's the whole purpose of this, whole goal is to meet, to meet the egg, okay? So, couple things with the eggs. If, they, the sperm, if the sperm arrive too early, they will die. If they arrive late, they will die. Uh, they will not meet the egg. So there has to be a perfect window, which is about a day or so, a day, a day and a half, that perfect window for the sperm to actually meet that egg. Okay, and that's not the last thing, not, not the last obstacle. The last obstacle is this. On the tip of sperm, you have this something called acrosome. Acrosome is an enzyme that will uh, dissolve the, the top part outside of the egg. Okay, and this acrosome has to match. It has to match with the, the code, this coating outside of the eggs. If it doesn't match, if it doesn't dissolve this coating, uh, the sperm cannot and will not get in at all whatsoever. Okay, so these, all of these conditions has to, to get through in order for sperm to actually get through this and be able to to conceive okay so usually by the time you hit this point where your sperm actually meet the egg you only have about one to two sperm left you're lucky you might have two or three left uh, that's when the sperm meet the egg only a few sperm remember we start from millions of sperm we start 15 million 30 millions to 100 million for some young honky donkey guy so um so those the chances for this to happen is very, very small. Okay, um, 
So technically speaking, it's very small. So when that happens, the conception will happen when uh, the two, the egg nucleus and the sperm nucleus will come together, bind and create a cycle. And that's when the uh, life was created, uh, when you start to replicating from one cell to two cell, two to four, four to eight, so on and so forth. Okay. So this is when Harry meets Sally. Okay. So the acrosome play a big role as well in terms of getting through. So something to remember. Okay. So if you think about this for a second before we go on, um, technically speaking, uh, only one sperm win the race. And all of us and all of you that's watching this video right now, you were that one. You were the winner of that race. Okay. You start that race with millions of sperm. You start that race with 15, 20, 30 million, so even more. And you were the only one that won that race. That you got through, you got through all of those obstacles. Okay, just you know, every time you come, you know, think about your life, no matter how hard it is, how difficult it is, your life could be. Think about this: that you had that challenge even at the beginning of your life, you know, before you getting here, before you actually forming you and becoming a person. You already went through that challenge, and you won that challenge. You are one out of millions. Uh, you are one out of millions sperm that actually made it. Okay, think of how precious that is, how how incredible that is for you to be alive, for you to actually even conceive and born against all of these obstacles, against all of these odds that you actually have. Okay, so every time things are down in your life, think about that, that you already conquered that challenge. So everything else in your life shouldn't be too hard, shouldn't be, um, shouldn't be as hard as that challenge. Okay, so don't get down on yourself. You know, feel that this is uh, this is the one of, one of the most difficult things in your life. You already went through the one of the most difficult thing in your life, the the smallest odd for you to to born. Uh, you went through that odd. You actually conquered that odd. So therefore, uh, you know, just empower yourself that you could get through anything. If you could get through this, you could definitely get through anything in your life. Okay, including including the science classes, these science classes that you feel so difficult to get through. If you could do this, you can get through this. Okay, so keep that in mind. Okay, so pregnancy, just a little bit. Uh, once the egg actually uh, conceived, um, had the conception occurred, the egg actually traveled down to the uterus and then implanted itself onto the uterus. Uh, a few things I want to mention with the pregnancy. Um, the one is the folic acid and B12. You do need those. Um, and we talked about that along the way already, why, why you need those. If you have morning sickness, you do need B6. Uh, just kind of FYI, B6 is actually great for you. Uh, this will take away your morning sickness. Okay, take away your morning sickness. Uh, also, not all prenatal created are equal. So, so a lot of time, women actually become allergic to the prenatals that they take. So if they actually allergic, you might want to switch them. The first thing you, you try, like... Uh, if you have someone pregnant and you try to give them B6 and nothing actually doesn't seem like it actually helps with the morning sickness, usually B6 will does take the morning sickness away right away. If it doesn't, next thing you want to consider is to switch them to a different uh, brand of prenatal. One of the brands that I would recommend uh, that I often use for my patient the most is this, is the uh, Tyler prenatal brand. Um, usually they don't, they have a, very few people actually allergic to that. So. Um, Choosing the right prenatal, prenatal is actually very important because that's going to last for a long time because you have to use it during pregnancy and also throughout your breastfeeding as well. So that could be up to two years uh, starting from pregnancy alone. So choosing the right one would help. Okay. Um, there's other things that you need to be aware about, which is the recent pregnancy age. Uh, the older women, the more complication you might get and other diseases as well like uh, Down syndrome and um, cleft palate and autism as well.
Okay, current medication, whether those, a lot of medication are not for pregnancy, so you need to consult your doctor. Um, even uh, most women could only take uh, Tylenol, so no other ibuprofen, naproxen, none of those. The only thing you could take literally is Tylenol throughout your whole pregnancy. Uh, birthing option now today. There's several places for birth. Um, you could have, you could go to a family center. You could go to birthing, uh, birth home births. You could do a birthing centers. Uh, you could do birth in the hospitals. Um, but there's a couple of videos I would recommend for you guys to watch. Definitely, uh, water birth, what that looks like, uh, pregnant in America, or the business of being born. This actually will show you, and we're gonna talk about this just shortly a little bit about how it actually affects your labor. Okay. There's different things now today to actually do uh, uh, to do birth. Technically speaking, having women lying on their back um, is the horrible way of giving birth. Okay, the most the, the easiest would be for the doctors to catch or midwife to catch um, to catch the baby because they just sit down and then have you in the same level of their body. So it's easy for them, not easy for the you or for the baby. Okay, the best position are these burning stool right here. Okay. Uh, you actually open up your hip. When you open up your hip, it's easier for baby to come out. Okay. When you lie down your back, the head of the baby, the gravity will pull toward the back, pull their weight toward the toward the back of your body, your spine, causing you to actually have more pain if you actually give birth lying on your back. So I would recommend. Uh, in fact, we recommend you to walk around to actually move that hip when you actually uh, about to go into labor uh, you don't want to stay on your bed for four or five six hours that's the worst thing you could do to to, to the labor it actually will cause more pain because of that baby you know pressing on your nerves on your back back nerves so i would you know we would recommend just getting up walking around uh the best way to to do the position is to sit in the stool you open up the leg you open up your hip the baby will come out a lot easier you use gravity to pull out the baby some hospitals actually use this already um, i know a few hospitals here does use this but if you still they put you in the back tell them no i need to move okay a lot of time it's easy for them so they could just put i put ivs on you so they could uh, do all kinds of things to you but those things actually make it a lot worse um, so highly recommend. I also, in the past, I travel around the world to see you know, how people give birth in different countries. Um, some of the rural area, this is no joke, in, in Thailand, uh, they still use this. Uh, this is this is for here, this is like a cadaver bed. You put dead bodies on here. Uh, in medical school, that's how we study. Um, but in Thailand, they actually put women on this cold they don't actually put any sheep they actually had them uh lying in their back uh in this metal metal, metal table uh and then put their legs up uh horrible thing to do to do to women uh, they really go through a lot of pain it's like you you sleep you're sleeping you lying back on the this cold metal piece uh causing them actually more pain Okay, so I won't go into much about labor and delivery phases uh, because that's a whole different class. And but you could uh, could look at here, uh, pretty stage one, stage two, stage three. Stage one is the longest one that usually people uh, kind of go through the pain they go through. You have the phase one, phase two, and phase three in that stage one, uh, depending on when the how cervix dilates and whatnot, and how far it's coming down. It's and the effacing of the cervix, meaning how thin the cervix actually will be. Phase two is when a baby actually comes out. Phase three is when you deliver the placenta. So those three stages. And we do all kinds of things to help with the labor in terms of pain. So definitely we do a lot of things to do that. Um, 
So in the U.S., uh, this is one of the more common things and co common things that people do in the U.S. Uh, and this is when you go into the hospital. This is a cycle the hospital actually often use uh, in the past. Um, I, I know some still do today uh, because of the time of the doctors and whatnot. Um, doctors, most OBs actually are not usually not all of them, but most of them uh, are not properly trained in in terms of normal birth. Uh, when you go in the hospital, they actually you know hospital is business. They are business. They want to convert the bed to so make sure that they have enough bed for everyone. So they trying to turn the person when you come in as quick as as they can. So my recommendation if you're going to use hospital birth, do not go until your water actually breaks. When you actually water breaks, then you go in the hospital. That's fine. But if your water hasn't really breaks yet what's going to happen is you start dilating um, and they will start pushing that for pitocin they will give you pitocin which is a synthetic version of oxytocin this is why they having that open line open iv line so they could just inject you with any anything just about so they will increase the pitocin they will actually give you pitocin what pitocin does is actually cause contraction okay when you have more contraction cause more contraction guess what the more contraction you have the more pain you actually get your heart rate will go up it's a stimulant and actually will increase your heart rate increase your pain when you increase pain increase heart rate your baby actually also affects from that pitocin your baby heart rate will also goes up uh, okay you could see here uh, when you have more pain guess what you're going to ask for you're going to ask for epidural 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 so you think of the term epidural which is this term here this is a space that they're aiming for okay um, the anesthes anesthesiologists actually aim for this little tiny space okay they will put the needle in and they'll stop right here before they break into the dura mater and then inject the numbing medication if they go short which could happen quite a bit your whole back will be numb but you still will feel every single pain there Okay, so they'll, they'll block you, but then your whole back will go numb. Your muscle here will go numb. Uh, it, um, nothing will do here. But if they go too deep, that they actually puncture somehow, puncture this little thing, uh, hopefully they're smart enough not to inject it in, but if they puncture it in and then nick one of these nerves, you will feel the shooting pain down your leg for the next two or three months. Okay, so if they're literally dumb enough for some weird reason, I, I haven't seen this, uh, but if they're dumb enough and actually inject it inside this uh, space here, Okay, you will suddenly collapse and pass out. Okay, it will take a few seconds. If they inject it into your CSF, it will numb your whole entire brain. You will go on respirator. Your 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 labor your your uh, re uh, re respiratory will slow down. Your heart rate will slow down. You could actually die. Uh, a huge complication. Okay, usually they don't tell you that when during during that time. Um, but something to to keep in mind. These are the complications that can happen that you're actually facing with when you go through the labor, when you ask for this. Okay. So this is what they do. They would go and uh, do epidural. Okay. And what does what happened with epidural is when you go when you go when you have pain, you ask for uh, they give you pitocin. Pitocin will cause you pain. Pain will actually do lead you to epidural. Epidural does is actually kind of calm you down, so it will stop the pain. But also, also what it does is slow down the contraction and also slow down the heart rate of the baby. Okay, so when those are slow down, guess what? The doctor is like, well, you're not progressing. If you're not progressing, so let's guess what? We're gonna give you more pitocin. So. If you're not progressing, we give you more pitocin. The more pitocin you give, you get more pain. Again, pain, you go to epidural. So they do this little dance for a couple of times. And if they do this dance for a couple of times, and they're going to come in and tell you that, you know what? 
um, you're not progressing. Uh, nothing is for the for the for the goodness of your baby. Uh, for the safety of your baby, the best thing to do is to cut you open and take out your baby. So, this is what they do. Okay, that's what we do the best. It's uh, that's what the doctor, you know, most OBGYN in the hospital, they train to do C-sections. So and how they train to cut you open to take out the baby. And the, the reason, the rhyme and reason would be that uh, this is the best interest for your baby. Okay. Um, technically speaking, in the world, uh, for the most part, majority of people in the world, and you don't need this. Uh, most people, most country in the world, even in European countries, they, we, they give birth at home, they give normal births. 80% of births, so technically we've been doing births for thousands or millions of years. Um, and everything is fine. Everything is completely fine. So um, why, why is now different? Having C-section actually increased the mortality rate in America. So uh, other places in the world, uh, they are giving birth at home and their mortality, infant mortality rate is very low. So why is that? Um, so why doing more could be uh, not good for, for the mom or for the baby. So his, a little history of R&D, we, we've been doing this for a long time, since uh, 1900. This is, um, this is what we did to women in 1900, early 1900, where we, we tied them up, we closed their eyes, uh, we, uh, we actually give them uh, drugs that kind of hallucinating them. Uh, they would go into the hospital and don't even know what hits them. And next thing you know, come out a week after you have your babies. And you do all kinds of weird things in the hospital. And most of them, even in the past, they tie women down. And they'll come out with bruises uh, everywhere on their arms, their legs, just to have a baby. Okay, This is what you go through back in early 1900s uh, in a hospital. So... In the history of L&D, we oftentimes practice, practice things. So when we develop a new technology, we practice it. That's why they call it medical practice. You keep practicing. We practice on human beings. So in the in the in the fifties, we tried the X-ray, and then we're like, "Oops, we should not do that." Kind of like Britney Spears moment. "Oops, I did it again." Uh, kind of moment. So we did X-ray and we found out, oh, it gives babies bone cancer. We should not do that. Uh, yeah. So now we use ultrasound. Okay, um, we used a little drug called thalidomide uh, in the eighties, seventies, um, and eighties, and it turns out that you have these babies that have adactyly. Um, so, and we like, oops, again, let's not do that again. We still use that drug. Actually, that drug is still used today uh, for nausea and vomiting, but there's a black label recommend not to use it for pregnancy because of this little side effect, so so called. Okay, so. Um, there's several things that you could do when you're actually pregnant, when you're about to have labor. There's, you know, we have all these recommendations, standing, walking, sitting, um, hands and knees, um, different position that you could do to actually help you, uh, help get that baby out. Um, and most people actually don't even do these. Uh, these are very simple exercises that you could do. Um, if you know, if you prepare well, uh, I always say that pregnancy and labor, it kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, if you prepare well during your pregnancy, your labor will be a breeze. It still will work, just like this, like, like a term, labor, you have to work at it. Uh, but it's going to be much better. It's going to go you know, as quickly and as a breeze. It's not going to be as bad as you think it is. Oftentimes, we have this connotation of labor as being like women screaming, yelling out of the top of their lungs. But not always, not always. If you prepare well, you do. there's a lot of things that you can do to help you actually get that baby out. Okay, very easily. Okay, and that's conclude the video for pregnancy and labor and delivery. I hope you enjoy the the information, and I'll see you again next video. Thank you.
Hello folks, welcome to the prenatal care video. Uh, thank you for watching. And here we go. Uh, so this video we will look into the uh, all the things regarding prenatal, prenatal care and how to prepare if you are interested in terms of prenatal care, how to prepare your patient for the uh, pregnancy as well. So what is prenatal care basically is the uh, antepartum. So it's the program that you would uh, monitor your patient um, before uh, giving birth or before labor. This is could be begin from the conception, the time of conception also in some cases could be even, uh, you know, family planning step as well. You're planning uh, having a, a child and they may come see to see you and uh, to kind of ask for your guidance and to your help into preparation into the um, pregnancy and labor as well. Um, this is very common service that, uh, that we that we do have here in the U.S. And on the average, you will have about um, twelve visits per pregnancy on average. And that's uh, for some people who could you know do it very early on, or some may not know that they are pregnant. Uh, you know, they may start you know down like in a, their second trimester already and whatnot. Um, so mo most women uh, usually come during that first trimester once they uh, realize that they are pregnant. Prenatal care, you have, uh, this is what we talk about today, is the preconceptional care, uh, diagnosis of pregnant, and initial presentation for pregnancy, and the follow-up prenatal visit as well. Uh, diagnosis of pregnancy, again, uh, these are just kind of common sense to most of you. Uh, cessation of menses, uh, positive home urine pregnancy tests. Uh, you could actually detect a CG, um, human corneal uh, tropic hormone in the blood. And usually uh, the, the blood you could actually detect right away about two days or so after conception. So by the time they come to see you, more likely you could detect through the blood. The urine could actually take about eight to nine days, but sometimes I could see up to 10 to 15 days before you could truly confirm with the urine. Um, even two weeks, uh, the level of ACG could be relatively low in some women. So you may have to wait a little bit longer to um, to make sure that they're truly pregnant. But you could also do ultrasound as well. You will actually see uh, the ultrasound. Um, we could actually use transvaginal ultrasound to see uh, any embryo, uh, any heartbeat in the embryo. The heartbeat will start at 21 days uh, of the gestation period, and we'll talk about that shortly. But 21 days, uh, not too too far from the uh, from the conception. So. So you could, like I said, you could use ultrasound to actually see uh, transvaginally. This is what it would look like. Uh, you could see the uh, little critter uh, growing inside the womb. Okay, um, pretty easily seen. This is part of the of the uterus. The initial prenatal care visits. This is the, the most important thing to kind of take away of this is uh, that you want to achieve certain goals when you have the prenatal care visit. The first one is to actually, really the most important one is to define the status, the health status of the mom and the fetus, uh, to see what's going on with the mom, what's going on with the fetus, is everything okay? Gestational age that's kind of relative uh, because may or may not be important, but just kind of give you a rough ideas of where things are, uh, how long is this baby been uh, is cooking or been cooking uh, in the womb, and then trying to come up with a plan of what kind of um, of static plan that the, uh, the mom would like to have, family would like to have as well. So this is just kind of to get the sense uh, that's pretty much your initial visit should be. And uh, the main thing would, for you would be these right here, the first one, uh, that to kind of define that health status. 
to make sure that uh, everyone is actually uh, is doing well and healthy. So uh, with the initial prenatal care visit, this is what we recommend. Um, usually uh, there are other things that we recommend, but uh, we usually recommend these things. First one is to risk assessment to make sure that um, if there's any risk or any uh, history or a risk of pregnancy or a risk of um, losing the baby, um, you, you want to make sure you address those issues right away. You could look at the estimate due date as well. Um, we look at the uh, we'll do the lab test. We'll cover the lab test shortly, and then also help with education in terms of nutrition and other things as well, and prenatals, things that they should do during pregnancy. The assessment of gestational age. Um, this is what the easiest rule to remember is the Nagel rule. Okay, Nagel rule is basically you add seven days to the last uh, day of the first day of the last menstrual period. Okay. First day of the last menstrual period, you add seven day and then you'd subtract three months from it. So let's say the la- the first day of the last menstrual period was twentieth uh, of September. You add three days, uh, seven days would be twenty seven, and you subtract three months. Three months prior to September is June. Okay, June, July, August, and September. So three months. So the estimate due date is twenty seven of June. This is a rough estimate, and it may not be as accurate. Um, and now today, uh, now today, you know, we used to, you know, back in the old, olden days, we used to carry these little circle around, uh, you know, every, uh, every OB would actually carry these little circle to look at what date, uh, when is the possible due date. Okay. Um, however, now you could actually download this app. There's actually an app that you could download. There's actually, there are several apps that, uh, even websites that you could actually go to. All you have to do is type in your last menstrual period and they will, calculated out everything uh, in terms of when is the uh, EDD they expect uh, date of delivery and you know and which trimester you are in and all of these things uh, kind of broken down for you pretty easily okay um, so this is a good app to have I would recommend um, if you you, know, you, don't, you don't have to get this specific app but uh, but there are several apps that you could actually use if you're thinking of going into uh, OBGYN so it's good to carry these uh, so we divide it into three trimester. Uh, basically, uh, you have uh, the first trimester from w- for one week one to week twelve. Second is from thirteen to twenty four and twenty five to forty. Those are the three trimester. Uh, the way we count this uh, is technically is forty weeks. Uh, but if you think about it, forty weeks from the last menstrual period, first day of last menstrual period, meaning that the fir- that la- that first two weeks you're not really pregnant, you're not even ovulating yet. So technically speaking, you're counting thirty weeks. 38 weeks and above. Uh, so you, you take two weeks to, to ovulate. And, uh, so you count from that 30 weeks on. So, but the rule is we count from the first day of last menstrual period. Okay. So the conception is 30 weeks. Um, but the gestation is, uh, for, for 40 weeks from that first day of last menstrual period. And we could determine the, uh, the fetus age based on the ultrasound as well. Uh, we usually recommend ultrasound in, uh, during week 12 to 16. Um, some might do a little bit later, 14 to 20. But 12 to 16 is usually the most common one. And we could measure the crown and the, uh, the spine as well, the length of spine and the crown to approximate the, uh, the, uh, the gestation dates and also due dates based on the ultrasound. Again, ultrasound, um, we would go in, we'll measure the head circumference, we'll measure the, the crown lump length, CRL. We also measure the spine as well to see, uh, and we'll look at the, that proportionately between the head circumference and the spine to make, to see whether any risk for Down syndrome or other genetic diseases as well. 
Okay, so uh, taking the maternal uh, history, that's very important because you want to make sure, um, you know, we talked about this in class already, the uh, the G, uh, the GPA or the TPAL, you want to actually record those, how many uh, gestation that had it, uh, have the mom had, uh, live births, uh, abortions. Um, so it, all of those information are quite pertinent in terms of understanding uh, in terms of the risk of the pregnancy, you want to determine any risk, including looking at the a previous medical history, uh, whether uh, mom actually had any previous medical history or complication during last pregnancy. So uh, all of these, uh, we want to be kind of monitor uh, early on to make sure that the pregnancy is going well. Psychosocial issue, this is big for some parenting uh, from mom as well. Uh, cigarette smoking, that could actually cause uh, a lot of things, uh, lower weight, um, you could have uh, microcephaly as well as other problem, uh, other complication, um, eruptions, uh, placenta eruptions, uh, ADHD, uh, all kinds of other stuff. If you still smoking, or even secondhand smoke, if you uh, you know taking a um, in any any smoke uh, inhalation, alcohol use uh, could actually cause fetal alcohol syndrome uh, (FAS) and causing you know. Um, just kind of stunning your brain to develop properly. So you could actually have other issues later on, like developmental delays or uh, mental retardation or even a lower IQ as well due to alcoholism. Uh, Any type of drug use like opium, barbiturates, amphetamines, all these could actually affect the the birth, causing to have a low birth weight, um, could have uh, um, premies uh, of the baby as well, uh, or withdrawal symptom after birth, so all kinds of things. Domestic domestic violence, also something to keep in mind and ask your patient as well to see, because that could put a lot of stress on the mom and therefore could uh, increase more stress on the uh, in the fetus and the baby, and that could cause a whole slew of other health problem or pregnancy risk as well. Any risk of hemorrhage um, and prenatal death that you should know. Uh, Stress could actually lead to those. When you do examination, you want to look, uh, do the pelvic examinations, and you want to look into inside into cervix. You can see in the top picture here, looking at the cervix with the uh, spatulum, uh, speculum, uh, spatulum, uh, speculum here. Um, you could see in the cervix usually have a bluish or hyperemia, and sometimes looks like this. It actually have a little blue tint here with red. Redness. This is a sign of um, sign of pregnancy. Uh, even a Chadwick sign. This is a Chadwick sign. This is you have a bluish color, bluish or purplish color, and looks seem like congested. Uh, you could see a mucus coming out uh, and red. This is normal, completely normal. This is part of the uh, the showing part of the um, part of pregnancy. If you see this, most likely the women is pregnant. Okay. Well, you want you want to do Pap smear. You want to test for other uh, STDs as well, like Neisseria, gonorrhea, chlamydias, All of those things you should do. Uh, look for any type of um, doing pelvic examination, and um, you want to make sure that uh, there's no infection in there or any other signs of abnormalities. Um, signs of pregnancy. Uh, these are four signs of pregnancy. I'm going to show you pictures of these later on. But uh, Hikar sign, um, Piskasek sign. Oceander sign and Goodell sign. Um, we'll talk from the bottom up first. Uh, Goodell is basically occurred during six weeks of pregnancy, and usually you can uh, see the cervix becoming soft. Oceander sign is you're going to feel the pulsing, uh, uh, pulsation of your blood 
uh, in the side of your fornix. Okay. Uh, you're going to feel that uh, pulsing on the side of the fornix and usually occur in the eight week. Uh, Hegar sign is the, uh, you have these, uh, the uterus on the top is actually larger. The bottom is actually empty and, and the cervix is firm. So you will feel for those. And I'm going to show you the picture of that shortly. And Fisker six sign is you have the asymptomatic, uh, is asymmetrical, asymmetrical of the uterus. Your uterus doesn't look, even one side looks bigger than the other side. And that's completely normal. Okay. Uh, we could do a breast examination as well. You're going to see the areola actually become a little bit bigger, more colorful. Um, and also you could look at the blood pressure pulse and EKG and BMI. This is the, uh, the HECAR sign. You're actually going to uh, use your finger and then you're going to use the other hand, push in right behind the fetus. Okay. Push in right behind there. So you're going to feel uh, from the bottom up and you're going to feel that uh, the cervix is a little bit uh, firm and then the bottom is um, less of a volume and then the top you're going to feel a harder volume on the top whereas physical sign you actually will see you could see that this side is actually taller this side is actually lower so you're going to see uh, asymmetrical of the uterus you could lightly touch on the top pretty easily you also want to run lab tests uh, during your first initial visit. These are pretty easy. Um, in your in your real practice, you're going to have a, a, a panel that already have in the lab sheet. All you have to do is just check the uh, initial uh, in, initial pregnancy panel, and it will have all of these in it, CBC, uh, with diff, uh, fasting glucose, liver, uh, renal function, uh, blood typing group, uh, RH, um, you know, and hemoglobin as well, UA. One thing I would recommend, really highly recommend, is letting your patient know what their blood type is. A lot of time I talk to the mom, you know, and they like, I have no clue what my blood type is. And I you know, often tell them that, um, you know, we test your blood every single pregnancy. We test your blood and the doctor, the physician, the nurse practitioner, they do know what kind of blood type do you have because we run it every single time. And most of them don't even know what kind of blood type they have. Um, and they don't know the, uh, whether, you know, with the differences between the RH positive and negative and uh, what does that means to them. Um, so you might want to, to educate your patient and let them know um, all of these little things. The subsequent prenatal visit uh, should be um, interval of four weeks or so once a month uh, until week 28 and then twice a week uh, until week 36 from 20, 29th week all the way to 36th week. And thereafter, which you want to hit 36, you are term. Therefore, after that, it's, it's a weekly visit until you actually have a labor. Okay. If you are high risk pregnancy, we recommend every one to two weeks interval instead of two weeks or four weeks. Uh, so you, you make sure that you're seeing your OB on a weekly basis. And even uh, right after your uh, term, you could, if it's getting closer, you have more contraction, you may come in, come back in every two days or three days to, to see where you are, how, how far you're progressing along. Okay. And every time you come in, you're going to do the same thing. Most women will do the same thing. You will ask them to pee in a cup before they even see you to, to look for the, the glucose and protein uh, to see to see whether they have any hypertension or diabetes during pregnancy. Uh, prenatal surveillance, there's different things that you could do to um, to monitor the baby. First one, I would recommend um, you know getting these uh, ultra Doppler, ultrasound Doppler to measure the heart rate. Usually you could start this using this from uh, week 10 and on. So it's good to, uh, to use these. Um, transvaginally, we could do from five to six weeks and on. Um, 
stethoscope why you could actually do between six to 19 weeks uh, that's when the heart will be big enough for you could to actually could hear but you know as the ob with my practice in the past how i used to do it is i would just uh using the doppler uh, it's easy but easy easy way and sure way of uh, listening to the sound and it's it's kind of giving the parents as well another connection with the baby because they hear the sound of the heartbeat so you when you use a stethoscope they can't really hear it no one else can hear it except you so uh, this is kind of open things up um, you know allowing your uh, allowing the mom to be a participant as well uh, in terms of uh, this process uh, you want to measure the the rate of change the uh, the height of the fundus and we'll talk about that shortly uh, the amount of amniotic fluid if you can um, Usually, uh, you could look at the diff- different stages, different part, um, you know, especially toward the end of pregnancy, whether you could see the uh, changes in the cervix, um, percentage of effacing, whether it's dropping down, all of those. So you could notice those uh, those things. Okay. Activity is to see whether there's any movement, fetal movement, usually detect from 18 to 20 weeks. First pregnancy, most women usually do not know what to look for, but after the first one, they pretty much know exactly what they're looking for. And they could detect that much earlier on than 18 to 20 weeks. Uh, first pregnancy, they may not know like, okay, this is what, what the movements feels like. So they may, the movement may happen along, along the way, but they may not notice it until later, much later on. Um, we recommend also non-stress non tests uh, from 35 weeks, um, but not you don't have not everyone needs to do it, uh, and or you could do it a lot earlier if you actually are if you have complication or you are at risk a higher risk of pregnancy, um, then we would do that much early on. Amnioscopy. Um, we do that if you're not coming out at 40 weeks, so we will check, uh, going and check the amniotic fluid. Uh, this is a good thing to remember. This is called the Leopold um, maneuver of abdominal palpitation. There are four main steps. Uh, there's five things listed here, but we'll talk about the fifth shortly. So the, f- the first one is to look at the height of the fundus. So feeling from the height of the fundus, you do have to measure them. Um, I would recommend having a um, little tape measurement and uh, using those measurements. We'll talk about that in, short, uh, in the last, uh, next few slides. Second maneuver is the fetal lie position to see where fetal actually is, whether transverse, uh, breach, uh, is it in the right position. Uh, you should be able to feel the spine of the baby and running your hand along the spine um, and then feeling the head where the head would be and on the other side as well. Third maneuver is to feel the crowning the head um, of the baby. You should feel that uh, every time, especially toward the end, toward the third and uh, third trimester. You want to know how uh, how far is um, is the descent, where is the head, uh, how big is the head, all of these things by just feeling those. And the fourth step is basically uh, to see any engagement by pressing a little bit onto the pelvis and coming up to see whether the baby make any moves um, uh, in terms of responsiveness to touch and pressure. And the last one is the fifth maneuver, which is the um, only used for cephalopelvic disproportion, meaning that the head and the pelvic are not the same, and especially if the head is too big to go through that pelvic. And you want you want to use those to to feel to feel it, and this is what the uh, Sackmeister uh, maneuver looks like. You uh, put the mom on the side, uh, and then you're pressing down on the side to actually kind of feel the pelvic bone, uh, this uh, pubic symphysis, and the head. 
So this is the pubic symphysis, and this is the head to kind of feel where things are. Uh, I mentioned non non stress tests. Non stress tests uh, again. Usually, um, we look at a few things here. The, the A, which is the top part, is the fetal heartbeat. Okay, the B is the fetal movement. Okay, by the mom, and the C is the fetal movement. This is B is movement by the mom. Mom hopefully should stay still. C is the one that move. Is the baby moving? And D is the uterine contraction to see how far along any contraction occur. And this one seemed to be occurring, a smaller contraction that happened, um, not a big one yet, just a small micro contraction. Okay. Non-stress tests, who, who need to actually do non-stress tests? Um, you have anyone at a higher risk in pregnancy, like people who had history of blood disorder, kidney heart disease, clotting disorder, diabetic, uh, hypertension as well. Um, or if you're actually seeing a slowing down of the movement or stop a cease of a movement in the past few weeks or few days, then that's what we would recommend the non-stress test. Uh, what other things that we want to monitor, monitor is like your blood pressure, your pulse, your heart rate, your weight changes, um, your, the height of the fundus, and we'll talk about that shortly. Um, vaginal examination, you only do that during the first trimester. Um, you may not need to do it again until the late, um, late uh, in your know, the third trimester toward the end of one shit's term you could actually see in terms of the station the presentation uh how far is it along the you the fundal height fundal height um this one there's a couple of different scale this one saying that 24 weeks is right by the umbilicus and then you use your two fingers to go on top uh, to go to 28 weeks uh four fingers to from the umbilicus that would be 32 weeks and 35 weeks between uh, umbilicus and the cyphoid process which is uh here somewhere up here so uh four fingers uh below the cyphoid process so and pretty easy to follow but i usually don't like to use those i like to use the tape measurement pretty easily and you could actually measure the, the height of fundus uh, typically speaking, uh, right at uh, 20, 20 weeks or so, uh, the this should be about twenty centimeters. Okay, twenty centimeter in twenty weeks, and after that, each week should bring on one centimeters. Okay, one centimeter that on add on to each gestational week. Uh, subsequent lab test, lab test you could do after the first initial one. You could do the CBC again every trimester. Irregular antibody screening, that should be the first and third trimester. Uh, the AFP, uh, should be on the regular basis as well. Uh, OGTT, uh, the glucose tolerance test, that should be between 24 to 28 weeks. Lovely test by drinking 20, 75 gram of sugar. Um, urine sediment or culture uh, of bacteria should be done every semester. Group B strep. Vaginal smear, all of those should be done on a uh, semester, a trimester basis. And you have the also screening for chlamydia and, gon uh, in, and gonorrhea as well. Okay, Spe uh, special clean screening for genetic. So if you think that they have a genetic disease, like run, have a genetic disease that run in their family, cystofibrosis, uh, Tay Sachs. Uh, alpha thalassemia, sickle cell. So you might want to run these tests before um, they go too far into the pregnancy. Okay. Ultrasound screening. This is uh, when we screen with ultrasound. The most common one are these two. Uh, like I said, between twelve to thirteen or uh, eighteen to nineteen. So those uh, weeks of gestation weeks, um, those will be ideal to do the ultrasound. There's only one ultrasound covered by the insurance, and the rest, if they want to do it. Uh, they can, but then they have to pay out of pocket for those.
Uh, recommended BMI. This is the recommended BMI. If you are lower than 18.5 in BMI, you should be gaining at least 28 to 40 pounds. If you are normal in BMI, you should be gaining between 25 to 35 pounds. So a uh, very healthy dose of food. Uh, if you if you are above average a little bit uh, more on ABMI, you should decrease the amount. You don't need 25 to 35. You need 15 to 25. And whereas if you're obese, you don't need anything more than 20 pounds at all. Uh, that dietary allowance, uh, you look at these, these are the recommended, uh, RDA, uh, for, for food, for pregnancy. How much pregnant, how much food, what kind of nutrients you do, do you need while you're actually pregnant? Hopefully this, if you take prenatal care, this should cover that in under prenatal care. Uh, counseling is also an important aspect of, uh, preconceptions. Um, if you have problem with um, emotional issues, some people actually have emotional issues th- when they go through pregnancy. Um, some you know, may not have so much of those issues, and you might deal with other things as well. But you do need to kind of sit down with your patient and kind of have a talk uh, because a lot of time during that time too as well, there's a lot of unresolved uh, issue or stress that could actually could interfere with labor and uh, babies as well. Uh, counseling visit, you could actually make uh, referrals for actual uh, in terms of social counseling, uh, mental health counseling. But this is genetic counseling that you could do and talk to them about if there's a history of like Huntington's disease running in the family, TASAC, PKU, any of these, you could actually sit down with them to see whether you want to run additional tests to rule them out, uh, whether uh, the, the chances are to have babies end up with those conditions. Social history, uh, maternal age, uh, depending on young and old, that could actually determine of how the outlook of pregnancy would be. Some uh, younger mom um, tend to gravitate towards certain uh, preference, uh, comparing to the older mom as well. So each women tend to have certain preference. You might want to talk to them about um, about their social history and um, making sure that they are, you know, eat they, they eat well, um, have all the nutrients, eating good food, but also um, not being at risk, um, you know, having too much weight, gaining too much weight, not u- not using any drugs or alcohol or smoke during pregnancy. Uh, you want to screen for other things as well, like uh, diseases, uh, whether they have immune, um, do they have uh, antibody for rubella, varicella, happy, uh, those kind of things, um, or even STDs as well to make sure they don't have any of those, and then give them a proper treatment or counseling to help them with those. Thank you so much for watching. I hope this has kind of helped you understand a little bit more of the prenatal condition. Uh, so I want to keep this video short, nice and short. So thank you for watching, and have a wonderful day.